to you, but here we are. So let me read first from 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the, gen excuse me, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is a passage that is incredibly dense. I've preached in my old church, I preached eight sermons on this four verses. Because it basically characterizes, it tells you all about what the church is meant to look like. What should the church look like as it exists practically in the world? Far more practical than you may realize um, at first glance. So I can only, I'm, I'm not preaching for the next eight weeks, uh, do one of those. So I chose to just focus on, I don't know if it's, we have a slide or not, but on the exiled church. The sermon is called The Exiled Church. How should we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to Christians? Yes, we're still, we can still worship without terrible persecution, but if you've been paying attention to the news, our governor general doesn't think very much of our worldview. Um, if you were paying attention, Julie Payette went on record uh, saying that anyone who believes that there is a divine incident that created the universe is out to lunch. See, people, uh, if she speaks about uh, space, I will respect everything she has to say. When she speaks about God, she's out of her depth. She has missed the mark. But in a world where our government officials are happily doing this, and then that worldview is being applauded by the liberal government, I'm not picking on anybody who's voted liberal, by the way, just making a point that, you see, we're in a world that is increasingly hostile to what we believe. Okay? Once upon a time, you would ask a pastor to be on town council because it was assumed that pastors um, had education, they were noble, they, had, uh, uh, they knew everybody, they had compassion, now, if you were to have a stand of people on a CNN interview and there was a professor, a celebrity, a scientist, and a pastor, who would the audience automatically assume is the least educated and the most biased? It's different. The world has changed. I'm not even, con well, I want to condemn it, of course, but the, the bigger issue is how do we then live? How do we live as a church that is increasingly becoming more, uh, more exiled, more marginalized in the community? So that's what we're going to look at today. So in a nutshell, you would have felt it already. If you're a Christian here or you're just a new Christian, then you will know it's, it, there's a, we all have a different timeline, but there's a point at which you realize that you don't fit in the world. You, the things you used to laugh at, you don't laugh at anymore. Um, you just begin to feel more and more like an alien in the culture, like you don't belong. Bit by bit, that happens. Now, that's not a bad thing, by the way. Okay? And this passage tells us about that. So three things we're going to look at today, as I always do with you. We're going to ask, what is an exile? How do you know if you are one, and how do you start living like one? Okay, what is it? How do you know if you are one? How do you start living like one? Okay, so first, the Jews at this time were an exiled people. So uh, first, uh, in this same book of Peter, the very first verse, he, he refers to the, the, the audience he's speaking to as the dispersed community. The Jews were, uh, as you know, in the book of Acts, were persecuted, the Christians were persecuted against, and they s spread all over the kingdom trying to find uh, um, a place to be, a place to reside. So they were automatically, they were forced to be exiles. 
So they've understood what we're about to talk about, and that's why this is so important to look at. In your Bibles, depending on what translation you have, verse 12 in the ESV, which we had up on the screens, um, actually verse 11, sorry, says, sojourners and exiles. Okay, that's what they, he calls us, Peter calls us. Uh, in the NIV, it says foreigners and exiles. In the King James Version, uh, it says um, strangers and pilgrims, I believe it is. Now, the reason there's such a mix of why we use those different words is because the word that's used in Greek there is called peripodemus, and it is, um, it's complex. Those of you who speak a second language will know there's certain words that you can't always get in English. It doesn't encompass the wholeness of what it means. And this word means what is probably the simplest to be, to be called a resident alien, okay? Um, it's, uh, you're, it's, see, there's a tension in that word intentionally, a resident and an alien. They're both, they're two different things, one foot in each kingdom almost. See, because when you're a resident alien, as Peter is saying, as a Christian, you're neither a tourist nor a citizen. See, because a tourist goes to a country and they plant nothing. Like you don't plant roots when you're a tourist. You don't actually give anything, well, some of your money. Um, but you don't provide anything, and you don't assimilate to the culture. You know, you try. You go to Paris, and you put a beret on, and you think you're French. But they all know, don't they? Who has been ripped off by a cab driver in a foreign country? <laughs> I have. As soon as they hear your accent, the price is way up. Way up. I had a guy in Portugal once say, there's four of you in the car. I'm taking all four of you somewhere, so it's four fees. Each of you has to pay. Anyway, Portugal's a wonderful nation. Um, so if you're a tourist, you don't plant, but you don't assimilate either. You're kind of, you're there, but you don't give anything in. But if you're a citizen, you see, you plant deep roots, that's good. The bad news is you also take on the culture. You breathe it all in. It's the American version of the melting pot. Take away your identity, now you are our identity. If you watch Star Trek, it's the Borg. Okay? Any Star Trek fans out there? Yeah, there we go. So... That's, so that's the tension that you find in this. Now, there's two implications of being what Peter calls in here a resident alien. The first one is you're a pilgrim. Now, I traveled a lot for previous roles I've been in. I spent a lot of time in hotels, but you know, they never quite feel like home because you forget stuff. The, co the beds are sometimes comfortable. You get bed bugs, you get a lot of pillows. You ever see the menu now on different kinds of pillows you can order in your room? Firm, soft, whatever. Um, so you, hotels are wonderful, but they're not a place to dig deep into. And you feel like you're, you know, it feels good when you're there, but sometimes you have to get home before you realize, ah, I was not really a comfortable at that hotel. I thought I was, but when I get, you get home, you realize, ah, this is actually home. That hotel wasn't. And this is the challenge that Peter here makes and the Bible makes to modern non-Christians or uh, secular humanists, if there's any of you out there. Because secular humanism will say this, we're all evolved. You're an organism that has been shaped over time to fit in this world that you were born into and created into. If that's the case, why do I still not feel at home in it? If billions of years have been going on and it's, I've been shaped into being comfortable in this universe I've been stuffed into, why am I still not at home? Why do I still medicate myself? If you were here Sunday night last week, I said Canada was listed as the seventh happiest country in the world to live in, but the fourth highest as far as number of prescriptions of antidepressants. So is it really? Are we really doing well? Are we a socially well-adjusted people? You know, so secular humanism needs to answer that question. If we are built for this world, why do we not quite feel at home? Why is it like a hotel to us? Okay, and, um, and this is the thing about pilgrims. Pilgrims know where they're going. 
So as much as they're walking and they're going somewhere uh, and they're enjoying the sights, um, they know there's an actual destination that they're heading to. So they enjoy where they're going. If you know what a pilgrim is, they go from point A to this uh, site, usually a, a religious shrine. And, uh, but they enjoy themselves along the way. The journey is important. But they never lose sight of the end because that's the point. And that's what a pilgrim knows. That's one implication of what Peter is talking about, about being a resident alien. The second one is um, resident aliens neither withdraw nor embrace. So in verse 12, Peter catches this pretty well here. It says, keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable. Okay, so act honorably in the world so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So here's this tension he's trying to capture. And the, the reason he puts that in there is because he knows Christianity is not popular anywhere, okay? And this is why. Imagine you were to go east and say, I'm through with Western culture that is so unbiblical and un ungodly. I'm going to move uh, to the east where they're, you know, they may not believe in Jesus, but they at least believe in a God. But you go there, and you know what you're going to find? They will love certain parts of your Christianity. They'll love that you are, uh, for, as if your perspective on sexuality is very uh, conservative. They love that you love family. But you know what? They're going to hate your forgiveness because the East is still very largely governed by a shame and honor culture. You don't forgive people in that way. If you've been wronged, there needs to be some kind of restitution. You can't just forgive. So you're going to be uncomfortable there. And if you come here and in our modern culture, see, they like certain things. The, the world doesn't mind our social activity, how we help people. They like that. But boy, do they hate our sexuality, the way we think about sexuality and about family and about morality. So you see, we're no matter where you go, you're going to be in exile. You're going to be in this tension that Peter is pointing out. And it's point, this, is, this shows up well in a book uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read it probably. John Bunyan, very famous book, allegory. And in it, there's a guy named Christian. It's an allegory, very basic. People are called what they are. And he's uh, traveling with a friend named Faithful. And they go to a place called Vanity Fair. Now you know where the name of the magazine comes from. Um, and Vanity is, is a city. And it's a city that is called Vanity because they just kind of, everything they do there is light and frothy. It's not, there's no, no substance. It's all about pleasure and fun. So they go there and they go to the fair in the town. And when they get there, they're arrested. And the reason is they won't buy the things at the fair. And when they're asked, they say, why would I buy it? There's nothing here of value to me. It's just fluffy. It's, there's nothing here I need. So they get put in jail and they're actually put in a cage, if I recall, and they're put on display. And but a debate starts in the town, in the city, where they're saying, hey, look how well-behaved they are. Maybe we shouldn't be treating them this way. And there's a big riot and debate about this. See, and this captures exactly what Peter is talking about, what we should be. See, because they were removed enough from the culture to be different and to be hated, to be honest, and rejected. But they were good enough to inspire shame in people when they, when they treated them poorly. And that tension is something Christians need to figure out. How do we honor God? How do we live biblically, but also live in such a way that we are not just rejected, but we're also attractive? How do we do both? And that is what this whole tension draws up. Um, and that's, really, that's what we all have, you see, because if you're a lawyer, you're never, as a Christian, you're never just a lawyer. You're a Christian lawyer. If you're an artist, you're never just an artist. You are a Christian artist. And we're always trying to figure out, how do we balance those two? Okay, so that's point one is um, what is an exile? It's that person who is neither rejecting the culture nor embracing it, trying to find that balance in between the two. Now, how do you know if you are one? Well, a simple way is you, 
as a Christian, you're going to be loved and hated. You'll be rejected and attractive. It's just the way it is. And if you have never been, if you've never had somebody as a Christian come to you and say, you're a bit of a prude, um, maybe you're not a Christian. I'm being very harsh now. But let me be clear. There's a point at which uh, you must, in some way, push back so much at the culture that they think, you don't belong here. You're, th you're thinking different than us. But there's also a sense in which you should be loved as well, where they look at you and say, they don't agree with me, but man, there's something about that group of people. So there's this tension. And the reason I say that I'm being very hard on you is Jesus is that hard. In John 7, there's this incredible scene where he, his brothers come to him and say, Jesus, if you, if you want to be a big public figure, you've got to go to, the, go to Jerusalem, go to the temple. You, nobody who wants to be a big, a big deal does these things in private. Get out, go to the city. And Jesus, remember he says to them, it's, a, it's quite a rebuke actually. He says, you go, because any time is right for you because the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me. And that's a slap in the face of the brothers saying, you have not, you've forgotten this second half. You have lived well enough that the world seems to like you pretty well. But you can go and do whatever you want because no one's going to hate you. Uh, they hate me because I tell them what they're doing is wrong. And Jesus lives that way. So if we are not doing it, there's a challenge. There's, you should ask questions. In fact, in Peter's letters, he actually says, examine yourselves to know, to make sure that you are in the faith. Examine yourself to make sure you're actually a Christian because you may look like a duck and walk like a duck, but not be a duck. Okay? There might, and I'll give you this example. If I, if I came to you and I said I had the spirit of Tiger Woods in me, Tiger Woods 2005, by the way. Um, <laughs> not, not after. If I came to you and said that, and then you said, great, let's go golfing. And I go out there and I shoot 130. You'd say, wow, you either don't have the spirit of Tiger Woods in you or something is wrong here or Tiger Woods' spirit doesn't even exist. But there's no evidence of it. Now, if we claim to be Christians, you must be like Christ in some way. And if you're not, that's, ask those questions. Start seeking, asking God that. Because there's four distinctives the early church had. If you can study this in books, I'll give you a name. A guy named Rodney Stark does a great job of pointing out how the early church grew. And if you look at the distinctives the early church had that made them all at once hated and loved, it's a good measuring stick for us as a church and for us as individuals. The four things are this, forgiveness. See, because in an honor and shame culture, you don't just forgive, it's an eye for an eye. And that really set the church apart. Second one was generosity. See, it was okay to give, but you never give, you give to your family, but you don't give to the poor because this is the way things work. If they're poor, it's because they're meant to be poor and you don't help them. You help your family only. So the Christians come along and start giving to everybody and not just their family and not just the wealthy. They found the poor giving money that they didn't even have. And that radical generosity challenged the culture and actually changed it, by the way. If you're not a believer, um, hospitals, Christians created hospitals. There was no hospitals before. Schools, the first schools, Christians created those because they saw the world and they radically saw something very different than the rest of the world and said everyone should be educated. Originally, it was why should you be educated? Not so you can have great scientific discoveries, but so that you can know God better and read the Bible. That's why you need to learn to read, so you can read God's word. So the church sees that. Forgiveness, generosity, patience is another one. No one up until that point in history, at least as far as we can tell, suffered the way the Christians did. They took a beating very well. And they, not only that, but some seemed anxious to be killed. I'm not suggesting that, by the way. But there was this, if you read the old uh, accounts of these early Christians, they almost seem like they're happy to die. 
praise God that I'm going to be thrown to the lions because now I'll suffer like Christ. I, don't, I can't often wrap my head around that kind of logic, but there's something in there where they suffered with such patience that it changed the culture again. And the last one is in sexuality. Uh, once upon a time, sex was purely a physical thing. There was no spirituality attached to it. And the Christians come and say, no, there is something else. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, sex is something that uh, creates a bond that must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured, one way or the other. And the Christians come and radically change things. Now it's taken for granted. But once upon a time, the world did not believe these things. And the Christians came and changed it. Are you marked by those things? Are we? Um, and you have to be both. So you have to be willing to be loved and to be hated. Because if you love, uh, I like to be harsh. I like to be direct. I like to receive direct news. But if I'm not careful, if we are not careful, if, you, if you're that person who likes the brutal part of brutal honesty, this is your problem. You like to be right more than you like to teach people. So if you're too harsh, all you really want to do is be right. But if you're too soft, all you really want to do is be liked. So where is that balance? And Christ, again, finds that balance so well. But that's, again, that tension that we must have. And if you're not either of those, if you find you're not rejected or loved, it's, it, it's, it's a pretty dire diagnosis because it means you're nothing like Christ. And that's hard. That's a hard teaching. But it's, that's what we see in the Bible. To, live, to know if you're living as an exile, you've got to look at yourself and say, am I being, am I, am I loved? Am I rejected? Am I pushing at those areas where I should? But am I doing it in a gracious way? I don't have any answers for you, by the way, yet. Last point. This is going to be an early day today. <laughs> Moving along. I'll take questions. Um, <laughs> so how do you start? How do you start being uh, an exile? Well, verse 9 covers this quite well. But you are a chosen race. Stop. You were chosen. You didn't... I, I see I, uh, Tim Keller says, you're chosen, not choice. You see, back in Deuteronomy way back, if you go back to near the beginning of the Bible, you see this is said about why God even chose Israel. Okay, listen to what he says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So, if my wife was to ask me, Carl, why do you love me? You, you know, the tendency in the books, in the plays, you remember uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem, How Much Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. I love you more than a summer's day. So if I start telling my wife, I love you because you're beautiful, uh, because you're patient, and so on, and I list some characteristics. The problem with that, although it sounds very nice, and it's a nice thing to do, is this. What happens when I'm not beautiful? What happens when I'm not patient? What happens when I stop being that thing that you love me for? Well, in this culture, it's the same thing about Starbucks or somewhere. Once you stop giving me a good product at a fair price, I'll find somebody who will give me a fair product at a good price. Um, so you're, you'll notice in the Bible that God is very careful to never say, I love you because you do something. It's always, I love you because I love you. You see, I have, a, I have many sons, but what, if, if Caleb here does something wrong. He spills paint in the garage. I don't know, whatever you want to do. I may rebuke him. I may get upset. I may be impatient, but he's still my son because I don't love him because he behaves well. Because if that was the case, I wouldn't love him. <laughs> because we never behave well, do we? 
If love is conditional, you see, that's the challenge in the world, is love is always conditional. And this is why it's amazing. I keep reading about how marriage is, a, is an outdated institution. You see, it's outdated because they say, you know, they approach it like a transaction. I'm going to love you forever, so long as you are worthy of my love. So long as you're faithful to me, so long as you uh, are good to me, as long as you speak nicely and raise my kids well, have a job, um, and as long as I feel that feeling that they show in the romantic comedies, as long as that's there, I will love you. But once it's gone, I'm out, because we've reduced everything to that. The church is called to do something completely different, to look at God's example and say, you know what, I love them because I love them. Those other things are there, but... I'm going to love my family and regardless of what happens to them, won't, won't you? And that's what Peter is calling us to radically here is that we love people not because of their traits. Think of an old toy. Have you ever had a, a baby, a kid who had a, a stuffed animal or something they loved? I mean, it's rotten. They drag it through the dirt. It's got missing an eye. It's horrible. There's nothing lovable about it, but they love it. Why? Well, I don't know why. Um, but it's because they love it, something about it. They don't just love what it does for, it does for them or, or a characteristic. They just love it. And that's the example we're being shown here. Now, um, you know what else is key? When you know you were chosen, when you know that God has chosen you not because how wonderful you are, it makes you can relax when you screw up. When you make a huge mistake, you can still lament it. You can still be upset and want to make it right. But you don't think, oh, I'm not saved anymore. Was I ever a Christian? Oh, what a terrible person. You see, you mourn. Remember the part in the Bible says we mourn, but not like those without hope. You can mourn, but you never despair if you understand you were chosen and not choice. If you think, oh, I became a Christian because I, then you're always going to wonder, well, what happens if I don't have that thing? I became a Christian, uh, you know, God loves me because I go to church and give regularly. What happens when you stop giving regularly? What happens when you don't go to church? In fact, your motive for going to church is kind of bizarre, if that's the case. I had somebody ask me uh, just not too long ago about something like this, about this idea of motivation. And they said to me, um, I've been struggling, I've had a chronic disease for, tw uh, um, how, many, how many, I think it's 40 years. So chronic illness, always in pain, which I cannot relate to, by the way. Terrible. And they said, you know, it'd be a lot easier to endure if God would just tell me why. If he would just show me why and show me when it will end, then I could endure a lot better. And I had to, I was gentle, but I also said, you know, why wouldn't he show you? This is why. Because if you knew exactly what was going to come at the end of a trial, you would be enduring it for that goal and not for trusting God. You'd be saying, I'm going to endure the pain, I'm going to endure the suffering, because at the end, I know I'm going to get a treat. But if you simply never see the end, then you know you have to trust God because you have to trust Him. Like a child holding your hand in the darkness. They have no idea, they have no hope but to trust you because they can't see anything. And you and I are being called to have that. Sometimes you may know why you're suffering. Sometimes you suffer because you're a fool. We all bring suffering on ourselves because we make mistakes. But God is sometimes saying, I'm not going to tell you, not because I don't love you, quite the opposite. I'm trying to teach you to trust me through all of that. And this, again, is what we're being, how do we start doing it? How do you start being an exile? You need to see that you're chosen. You need to see that you were chosen freely, that Christ was an exile. See, he had everything, and he came to you. He left. He is the only real exile in some ways. Now, you and I can never make a home here. And the reason is, uh, it's we weren't built for this home. 
you can taste something. You know, when you accept Christ as he is, as the exile, as he died for you, what you're going to realize, you'll have a foretaste of home. And that foretaste of home will start to alleviate your homesickness. The more you stare at Christ, the more you begin to realize, I don't belong here, but I'm going home. There is a pilgrimage. I'm heading there. And it helps you immensely through all of this. Um, and you see, this is another incredible thing. I wrote it in there. Um, in nowhere in the New Testament does it ever say Jesus left home. So he travels quite a bit. He's walking around. It never says, and Jesus left home. It never actually refers to a home here with Jesus. Only place that even comes near it is in the Gospel of John, where John, if, you've, if you read it carefully, you're going to see all throughout his Gospel, Jesus is saying things like this, I have come from the Father, and I am returning to the Father. It's said over and over, I think a dozen times, through the Gospel. Jesus' only time he refers to home is God, never here. And that allows him to live very differently. And we need to come to see that as well. Because really, what's the best you're going to get here? What's the best you're going to get? And I'll close with this. I said it Sunday night. You see, if you're here Sunday night, you have to forgive this. Uh, in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the hope set before him, he endured the cross. Now, Jesus endured the cross. He went through this miserable life, beaten, death, all these things. Not just that, bigger than the physical sufferings. He endured at the end uh, what the theologians call the dereliction, the separation from God. Now, he endures all that for something joyful in front of him. This end goal for him was what endured him and allowed him to go through this. What could possibly been the joy set before him? Because, you see, he left everything. What did he have? What did he not have, sorry, before he came? So he leaves everything. He's the king of the universe, all of creation. He has everything at his disposal. And yet it says there's something else that he got from coming here. The only thing he didn't have when he came, but he had when he left, was you. And you, believe it or not, are worth it to him. You know, I, I joke with some friends. We once tried to figure out, a, I worked in a bar when I was younger. And you f if you ever worked in restaurants, you have um, weird topics of conversation. And one of them was, how do you, uh, what's the worst financial deal ever done in the history of the world? So we're joking, you know, it's the Louisiana purchase. Or it's, we got all the new world for whiskey and hatchets. Like, we'd be just inappropriate stuff. But this is the most ridiculous financial transaction because the person who had everything gave up all of it for you. I don't know all of you, but I know you're not worth it. <laughs> I know it. And yet, to me you're not, but to him you were. To him you were. And that even if all of us were perfect and only one of us wasn't, he still would have gone to the cross. That's incredible. When you notice that is the case, and that is Christianity, by the way, the idea that you're chosen, you don't earn it. You don't go by being good. When we teach our children that be good and you're gonna, you'll go to heaven, nonsense. Because you're not good. None of you. It's not the point. If it was goodness that got you in, then badness would get you out. Be terrible. You're chosen, and that is all. And that's what was, the church is a church in exile. First must come to terms that you are nothing special, and yet you are something special. That you have deserved nothing, but you got everything. When you recognize that, boy, you can take a punch. You don't have to fight for somebody else's approval because you've got the king's approval. Who needs a, pe a peasant's approval when you have the king's? That's what the, go what the gospel is. That's what Peter's showing us. And if we want to live as a church that helps change this world, we have to embrace this tension, living in it and not of it somehow. That's all I have.
Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. You are awesome. Lord, this, um, uh, this little passage in Peter shows us um, that we are a chosen people. And we could spend hours and days just sitting about how, not just how complex that idea is, but how humbling it is. We want to believe that we are better than some people. We'll say things like, I'm good, I'm better than that person. I'm, at least I'm not a murderer. Um, Lord, but you come and say, no, nothing to do with any of it. I chose you just because I love you. Not because you have a twinkle in your eye. I love you because you're mine. And Lord, when we come to terms with that, we run. We'll be a people. Imagine his church, Father, set on fire for 500, 400 people, whatever it is, um, running out into the world saying, come and join us, not because we're awesome, but because we know one who is awesome. Imagine uh, how generous we would be, how forgiving we would be, how patient we would be. God, it's, um, we want to be transformed by what you've done. Father, we love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.